You're listening to Tov, a podcast about the good place and Jewish ideas. Hey, everyone. It's good to be back here with Rabbi Rebecca Rosenthal. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, nice to see you. Yeah. For those who've been uh, listening to these as they've been coming out, it's been actually a little more than a month since we have recorded and published. And uh, so I appreciate you waiting for us to catch up. And (laughs) so um, should we jump in? This is Chapter 8, Most Improved Player. You want to give us a summary, Rebecca? Sure. Uh, In the aftermath of Eleanor's confession, Michael summons her for an interview to determine if she is in fact a good or a bad person. Janet is still glitchy after her post-murder reboot and fulfills Michael's request for Eleanor's file with a series of cacti. So Michael begins conducting a litmus test, asking a series of questions as whether she has ever committed murder or reheated fish in an office microwave. When Janet finally finds Eleanor's file, Eleanor is forced to tell the damaging dress bitch TV t-shirt story, leading Michael to summon Trevor from the bad place. And I like that Trevor is wearing the dress bitch t-shirt when he goes to pick her up. The rest of the group tries to vouch for Eleanor in various ways, but it's only when she gives Michael his own confession and says that Eleanor has been learning that Michael decides to stop Trevor from taking her away immediately. As the episode ends, Trevor brings out the real Eleanor Shellstrap. All right. Well, so did you have any any great favorite parts of this episode? You know, this episode felt like more transitional than other episodes. Like not really that much happens here. We sort of end in a similar place to where the episode began, which is unusual, at least for the ones that I have talked about with you on this this podcast. I think the la- the previous episode, which I was also talking to you about, right? The ending is Eleanor's confession. And that's like a big big moment. And so here we're really playing out uh, the, here we're really playing out the aftermath. But I just, I love Michael's tests about like whether you ever went to a Red Hot Chili Peppers co- concert or took off your shoes and socks on an airplane. I thought like, it, you know, he goes from these big serious things to these small things, but some of the small things in our everyday life, if especially if we don't thankfully encounter murder in, in our everyday life, right? We encounter some of these people and you're just like, oh, those people are the worst, right? When people do things like reheat fish in an office microwave. Um, I thought that was like just really funny. Um, And I also, I just love that Chidi was so proud of Eleanor for citing Kant and that he's in this moment of such deep turmoil. And he's like, he's a true teacher in a lot of ways because he's like, oh my God, my student learned something. And that's so great. That's like even better than anything I could ask for is that my student learned. And I felt that along with him. I feel that when I when I teach students, it's like, oh, did they learn something? I have succeeded. And and actually, yeah, because he it sort of re reframes his perspective, I think, like when you're when you can see that learning, it almost makes you more forgiving. It seems like that's going on both with him and also Michael, who seems so tormented in the course of the episode. Um, even though like he's you would think he'd be uh, sort of satisfied when he finally gets to the bottom of things, but but he's not. He's become sort of invested in someone who seems to be learning. And I, I just going back to what I was saying before, I think that when I encounter things in in certainly in the wider community, when I see people at a distance who seem infuriating uh, in the in the local political world, I just want to sort of jump and join the the screaming sometimes. But if I encounter them and there seems to be some moment of 
of perhaps uh, movement or, or coming towards something or things we talk about that surprise them or surprise me, then it, it kind of throws me in a different direction. I think one thing that's like so rich about this show is that you see Michael and Chidi be impressed by Eleanor's learning. And then once you, and we could talk about this, you know, in the second season, but once you learn about what the twist is, it puts Michael in a whole new light, right? And everything that he's talking about in this particular moment in a completely different, in a completely different light. And it's like so fascinating to think about, I, you know, I don't know, but did the writers know that that was coming? And is this, you know, is this really just like a secret way of signaling to us what's going to happen in the future? Or is this really just like an amazing coincidence? I like, I think the writers are brilliant. So I think they knew it and we're setting us up here. It, it, it is, it is true. And that, I mean, in a way it makes Michael's uh, actions a little more troubling because if he's really trying to, uh, if his expression of sincerity and even loyalty toward Eleanor is part of a, uh, you know, is part of his whole uh, twisted torture act, that doesn't seem, that doesn't seem good at all. <laughs> but on its own terms, you know, before you know that, it seems, it seems kind of interesting. I mean, you know, I think this, this other moment that, that really stood out to me was just sort of the, as you said, like Michael's particular torture, as, as he said, confronting your greatest failure that when you, when Eleanor is sitting in front of him, he's just, his, his great failure is right there in his face. And, and I don't think any of us like to go around in the world thinking about, how, you know, following, being followed by our greatest failure, you know, thinking about people, it makes me think about like Hillary Clinton when she wandered in the woods after, <laughs> after the election, right? Like you just, you have to figure out a way to get away from it because you don't want your failure to be there every day staring at you in the face. It's it's funny. This is the perhaps the you are more high minded than I because uh, I who granted him living in New England right now. Uh, if I give greatest failure, was the Red Sox are in the playoffs as we record this, and uh, uh, probably the most famous moment of failure in uh, World Series history was uh, Bill Buckner's uh, fumbling of the ground ball, which uh, converted basically a World Series victory into World Series loss. And I was thinking actually about sports where you know, your score, it's really the only other realm where you have this kind of real-time accounting, your statistics of success and failure, and then you're just like at Michael's thing here with the file that has your greatest moment and your worst moment, like that's definitely your your reel of highlights and bloopers is, is very real in, uh, especially in baseball, I think, of all the sports. Yeah, I, I think, you know, in a lot of sports, because I it has to give the commentator something to do, like you know, how many times on a Tuesday have you done this thing? And, you know, how many times it have someone who's, you know, 32 years old done this other thing? And, and so the idea of tallying up your successes and failures is a big part of, of sports. I wouldn't really know, but I, that's what I, that's what they tell me. Um, so I think and, we've established that sports and Star Trek are two things that you don't. Yeah, but I, I live in a house with some sports fans, some Red Sox fans and some Dodgers fans. Ooh. So everyone is keeping their hope alive right now in the current playoff situation. Well, I watched, I, I totally agree with you about this kind of transitional episode. It was really interesting to go back after a few weeks of not watching intensely to this. And I just sort of by uh, chance of what was going on at home, invited my 14 year old who is not the, who hasn't been like a dedicated good place person to watch this episode. And she was like the perfect companion because all the gags, all the all the slapstick stuff she just loved. The whole thing about Janet and the, the cactus, everything's a cactus. And uh, definitely the uh, people taking off their shoes and socks, you know, on the airplanes. 
I think Trevor's thing at the end uh, that they can finish it up so you can go back to putting rainbows up your butt. <laughs> really? Well, I don't really like socks, even though I live in a cold weather climate. <laughs> but if I go on an airplane, I always wear socks because you would never take off your socks and shoes. That does send you right to the to the bad place. I agree. <laughs> I, I have... I have heated tuna in like the uh, office, like tuna melts in the, uh, yeah, you're shaking your head. Um, but uh, at home, I'm not, I, I do the fish thing. Yeah. In the microwave. I wondered as a New Yorker, whether the, I, I, this resonated, this thing about the train, Trevor's thing about making thousands of stops for literally no reason. I mean, I have been on trains that feel like they're endless. The one thing he could have done to really make it New York was to make completely unintelligible announcements on the train every <laughs> at every stop where you have no idea what they're saying but you're sure it's important and it's pro they're probably saying they're going to skip your stop for some reason but i have to say the pandemic has cleared out it cleared out the transit and it's slowly coming back but it is very strange to be on the subway at rush hour and not be packed in like a sardine with everybody mm. and thankfully everyone leaves their shoes and socks on on the train because that would also be wrong <laughs> i think that probably I really love this line where uh, where Michael finally has the file and asks to hear about the, I guess, the T-shirt story. And, and Eleanor says, it doesn't make me look great. Don't judge me. And Michael says, that's literally the purpose of this entire exercise. You know, when I when when he said that, I thought to myself, like, isn't that what Yom Kippur is? I think most people feel deeply uncomfortable, actually, with the idea that we're going to get judged in exactly the way that Michael is judging Eleanor. And I think we think about God with God's book and, you know, yes, you were good and no, you were bad. And here's your good things and here's your bad things. And, you know, that Michael as God judging everything you've done. And I think that's, that's a theology that makes a lot of people very uncomfortable. This idea that somebody would be up there tallying every good and bad thing that you have done. But when we get to Yom Kippur, it's like, yeah, that's literally the point. That's, you know, Yom Hadid, the day of judgment. That's literally what we're doing. And so I just thought like, oh, well, it's a few weeks after Yom Kippur, but the themes are universal. Yeah. And I think actually the idea of don't judge me is also something maybe they're making fun of because a world that had no judgment would also be terrible. I think it's really interesting that Eleanor, even in her recollection, there is a point in this whole thing with the t-shirt and the, the laundromat where she, even her earthly pre-good place self, realizes it's gone too far. I had this experience in uh, uh, when I was training at a hospital chaplaincy where I thought that this whole, you know, accepting non-judgmental thing was kind of the point. And I presented a situation where um, I retold the story of a patient I had encountered in the hospital. And uh, the rest of the group kind of looked at me and said, like... <laughs> How could you how could you have accepted that without judgment? He told you some really terrible things that he had done and you're so like pleased that you that you were there for him. <laughs> and uh, like at some point you have to judge stuff. And Eleanor is an extremely judgmental person, right? Even in the good place, she's very judgmental. She judges Chidi, she judges <laughs> Jason slash Yanyu, she judges Tahani. I think she still judges Tahani, even you know, after they have kind of their bonding moment, that she really is the person who lets first impressions influence how she relates to people and what she thinks. And part of her growth is like figuring out, oh, not everybody is only what they seem on the surface, but actually you have to, you have to go deeper with, with people. And over the course of the series, she really, she really does. And I know this is the theme that's come up a couple of times as we've been talking on this podcast, but just the idea of 
one of the themes of the show being about like Eleanor figuring out how to be in actual relationships with people and not the kinds of relationships that she was in in her in her life. There were a couple things where uh, Jason is being interviewed by Michael that I wondered if they were little homages. I remember when I was really young, this movie uh, being, I think it was called, was it Being Alive? No, Being There, Being There. That's what it was with the um, Peter Sellers as the uh, the gardener who is considered to have uh, cognitive deficiencies and is uh, around these uh, Washington power players. And he, whenever they speak to him, all he can do is, is uh, respond in terms of uh, very simple gardening metaphors that they assume are profound and Eventually, I think at the end, they used to, they consider him as the only person who can save the country or something like that because of his wisdom. And uh, of course, we know this is an act of, of Michael. Are you familiar with that uh, film? Is that... Uh, no, but it sounds really interesting. <laughs> and I think, you know, it's, it's where we see the, the behind the scenes, if you will, of the interview where Eleanor and Cheetah are like, just don't say anything. Just don't say anything. <laughs> just because they don't trust that he could possibly open his mouth and be helpful. And him opening his mouth creates a whole other domino effect, right? They can only deal with one crisis at a time. <laughs> right now, the crisis is Eleanor. And then, you know, we layer on top of that the crisis of Chidi and, and the whole thing just keeps kind of spiraling and creating bigger and bigger sinkholes, if you will. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I was interested when Michael said, there's no such thing as mistakes in this realm, right? And that's actually ultimately what allows him to save Eleanor, Kristen Bell Eleanor, is the idea that they should keep her while they sort it out because there's no such thing as a mistake, hmm. right? We we don't live in a world where that's a thing, right? We live in a world where there are constant mistakes. And so we have to learn as humans how to solve, how to solve mistakes and how to move on and do chuva, do repentance and, and, try, and try again. And we learn that there are a lot of mistakes in this realm. We just don't, you know, Michael just doesn't realize that, that that's what they are, but it's, it's interesting to think about the idea that we that the way we construct the good place is a place without mistakes, but mistakes being such a rich way for people to learn. And so thinking about like, is it really good to live in a world where nobody ever makes a mistake? You know, I, I hadn't thought about that in, in connection with the, the episode here. It's throwing in uh, focus for me that we seem, I think, right now to be living in a time where on the one hand, there's there's kind of an ideology of people should make mistakes and, you know, the world is far more far too complex for us to think we can get through it without doing that. And yet we at least it's said that we are w more intolerant of at least certain kinds of mistakes than ever before. You get certainly if you're a public figure, you have no margin for error. Uh, or do-overs if you say the wrong thing or you describe something in the, the wrong way. Uh, I just a couple of minutes ago in trying to describe this movie and this character uh, that Peter Sellers plays of a gardener who uh, back in the time would have been, it'd been easy to say, you know, this is a figure of low intelligence or this is a figure is mentally retarded. And even now, I don't know, you know, what the, exactly the right thing is to say when not in a, I mean, I'm talking to you, but we're talking in the presence of what I hope is literally hundreds of thousands haha, of people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Who knows I, if I'll be canceled for, for saying the wrong thing? <laughs> well, we just had um, today, we had a, a round of diversity, equity, and inclusion training at, at work. And one of the things that the trainer, was Liz Kleinrock, who's this amazing educator, um, was talking about was if we spend so much time on language, we never get to the actual meat of the, of the issue. 
And so she sort of said like, these are the terms and we're going to use them. And like, we're going to actually try to get actions and not to spend all of our time wordsmithing that wordsmithing we've maybe got we've lost the thread of the episode maybe but that (laughs) wordsmithing is like one of the things that prevents people from actually doing the work that they that they need to do so that's not to say everyone should just go around saying everything whatever they feel and in an you know in an insensitive way but also thinking about like what are the actions that using correct language might prompt you to to do in the world do you have a any jewish lens you're bringing to this episode the, the main thing I just kept thinking about over and over again was the was the text from the Talmud about like sort of we're going to weigh everything that you do, the good and the bad, and that one good thing can can push you in one direction and, and one bad thing can push you in the other direction and that you should always kind of live your life as though everything is in balance so that the next thing you do will push you over to the good, right? Because literally Michael is making a tally and, and eventually says to Eleanor, do you think you belong in the good place. And she sort of says like, well, maybe there should be a medium place for people like me. And we learn, in fact, there is a medium place. But that that this idea that most of us walk around in the medium place, right? We don't walk around in the bad place or in the good place, but most of the time we're like fairly well balanced. And that, but that we should live our life as though the next thing that we do could really like push us into the good place or push us into the bad place to hang out with Trevor, who seems kind of fun, but maybe like you don't want to go there forever. So, you know, this idea that um, all, all of our actions count, right? That it's not just how many good things and how many bad things, but that each individual action counts as well. That's that's interesting. There's a complexity even in the, the story that they decide to focus in on here because we've definitely heard about the product whose name now I'm forgetting. Do you remember that that Eleanor sells fraudulently as her job? Oh yeah, uh-huh. I forget what she I forget what it is, but yeah. Oh goodness. And um so like which I think is probably like objectively and like you know, it it combines a complete disregard for human well-being with a zest for you know cheating people and deceiving them but uh and this is something the thing with the dress is a you know seems like a garden variety thing for her and it actually spins so it spins way out of control and even you know past the point she once she sells it to you know she sells it to herself and the roommates and then the one roommate who takes it and runs with it and turns it into the into the t-shirt thing like that's uh in a way, I guess that's the, the we don't realize maybe that's something which is just for, for Eleanor a sort of regular role and maybe not the worst thing she's ever done, quickly becomes the worst thing she's ever set in motion ever. Right, there's one moment in that story where she is like, maybe this isn't the right thing to do, right? She has some tiny moment of self-awareness when she comes home and her roommate is there with the t-shirts. And and then there's the moment where where she says to Michael, like, don't ask me what I did with the money because she <laughs> bu- goes and buys the dress. And, uh, you know, the, I think the question I asked about that was like, if Eleanor took the money and gave it to charity, gave it to Sadaka, would that be would that have redeemed the episode in some way? Or is it still like really, really bad because of this public humiliation thing? And, and you know, if we're talking about rabbinic text, the rabbis say that shaming someone in public is like murdering them. This idea that like when all the blood rushes to your face, it's like you're you're murdering someone. And we we murder people every day on the internet with all of our, uh, right? It's, it's much easier now. The, the public reach of, of shaming someone is, is vast. I think the question is, is there any way for Eleanor to have redeemed herself 
in this episode, right? Is giving the money to charity enough? Or if she had stopped the Ruby from selling it or returned the shirts or fessed up, like what would have been what would have been enough if she had bought the dress and then gave it to the roommate to say like, sorry, I ruined your dress and possibly your life, right? Is there a, I think Judy's would say like, there is a chuva somewhere, right? You can, you can make chuva in some way. You can repent and, and do better in some way, but it's not clear to me based on the incident, like what that way is. And because Eleanor makes a series of bad choices and not just one bad choice, she's not able to come back from it. And it becomes the worst thing that she's ever done. Yeah, I'm very glad that they didn't try to do that, actually. When Trevor, as you say, comes back and the gang, they have the dress bitch t-shirts that it's like reverberated to eternity. Is like, And a... they're bedazzled, which is just <laughs> extra fun. <laughs> that, that I think that's a way of saying like, even if like they probably would wear that t-shirt, even if she had figured out a way to start the dress bitch, you know, um, Girls Empowerment Foundation or something. It still would not. Right. That's the Mindy Sinclair question we'll deal with in, uh, in a few weeks, I guess. How do you get to the medium place, right? And I think we can ask this question later, but like, do you want to be in the medium place? Because I think the the Talmud would say, like, most of us are in the medium place. Well, the other thing that you're pointing out, I think, is that the, the our action, a single action, it's a fallacy to try to assess us action by action and score score points because the uh, the tally on any action isn't really in for a while till we see where it leads. Um, I do agree with you in the sense that it is possible that she could have redirected this so it would have been, you know, less horrible. But clearly, you can't just go by that. It's a it's a it's a floating situation. And in a way, I mean, I think, you know, the whole, as you're saying, the whole thing about Eleanor is that since she doesn't really take her relationships that seriously, um, even with these people she seems to like to hang out with, there's no, not not even just a feedback loop, but there's no like uh, safety net. There's nothing that could have caught her, nothing she would have listened to kind of early on that would have uh, constrained her. Well, like her, her roommate is just as bad or possibly worse, right? The, not the dress one, but the one who go, do, works with her to make the to make the t-shirts and all of that, right? When Eleanor expresses some reservations about this plan that they have, the roommate basically says like, look how much money we got. And they just go on and on. And and Eleanor, when she expresses some reservations earlier, the roommate says, well, she's such a terrible person, right? Mm-hmm. That That as bringing us back to the earlier conversation about being judgmental, right? That that when we, and people say it all the time, I'm, I am guilty of it too, right? Oh, that person's terrible. That person's awful. Do we really mean that, right? Is, is anybody really all terrible? Or I would say most people are not all terrible. How can we find that, that thing inside of people that would help us think about them as more human and not as completely one thing or completely another? I think that, you know, this episode does turn on it being demonstrable that Eleanor has done some things that are true. She has not murdered or directly, you know, done things like that, but that, but that she has quantifiable awful things, you know, on her, on her life resume. And it kind of has to be that way. And and we've talked, I think before that the, the writers have of course made her likable or even lovable in certain ways that we don't want that to be the last part of the story. It's challenging, but I think we have to take seriously that she, she has, uh, you can't just accept her on the terms that she presents herself. For me, the the thing that was the the angle in, and I was because I was I was like you were saying, thinking about how in how sort of staying in place the episode is, is it made me it made me think about how much of this is about the the active 
confession. And I was thinking about I think about this from a couple points of view that when Maimonides, uh, who I've called, you know, Judaism's least funny rabbi ever, introduces the idea of tshuva, the very first thing he talks about is confession. I'll put the actual text in the, the notes here. But that, that verbalizing confession, even if it's just before God or before the divine, however you see that, is the essential first uh, thing you have to do, even before you start dealing with apology to another person or, um, or the actual demonstration of repair. And you have to name the thing, you have to name that you are uh, regretful and ashamed, and as well as your commitment, and you should, and that shouldn't be a perfunctory thing, is what the way Maimonides puts it. And I've been thinking for a long time about the fact that in Hebrew, the word for the same root word describes confession, vidui, and also acknowledgement, like just, just saying things as they actually are. So confessing can even be describing something, you know, you did well, you know, carefully. And it's the same word as, as gratitude, toda, that's a whole other, that's a whole other kind of thing. And I realized that in a way, this whole episode is her, is Eleanor's confession, and she's not doing it she has talked about things or she has uh, laughed at bad things that she's done that it, she's flashed back on before, but this is the first time she seems so ashen about it and um, and that she has someone to tell it to like just sort of straight up. I mean, it's in the file. She has no, although Michael, it's not exactly in the file. Like Michael has the points about it, has sort of the main points, but really requires her to, to enunciate it. And I really have been thinking about, like I never really understood why confession you know, outside of apology was important, right? She's not talking to her roommates about this. She's talking to somebody else who's observing. And I think I started to get that, like, that's maybe the only kind of pure moment where, you know, you're, it's that moment of holding where, like, you can't start repairing it yet. You're in that uncomfortable place where you have to just say it. I've been thinking about you know, as soon as you start apologizing, you put pressure on the other person to like say it's okay or I accept, or you force them to say no, that's not good enough. And this um, is a sort of a holding place. And I think that so this is probably the longest monologue I've had in the whole podcast. That the uh, the you know my my worry has been that uh, Judaism compared to say uh, an ethical philosophy doesn't doesn't add anything at all into the picture. It just dresses up what we've been talking about in a different name. But I think, and I'm not saying uniquely Judaism, but I think this idea that there is this there is this uh, practice and this way station that you can't you can't describe. I mean, the value of the confession it doesn't have any action or point value really in and of itself. It uh, you can't. I mean, unless you want to judge it by what it leads you to afterwards. But but I thought it was really very powerful. And Trevor taunts. Eleanor by saying like you know you have such a beautiful smile why aren't you smiling to kind of remind us just how much she's not smiling and her not smiling through all this is like probably the biggest breakthrough of the whole thing even though she knows at the moment it's going to take her to the bad place you know but I think there's another breakthrough in this in this that the way you were just saying reminds me of which is you know Michael has that cube which I think a lot of parents would enjoy having in their <laughs> he asks Eleanor, do you know who killed Janet? And she says, yes, and it lights up green. And then he says, are you going to tell me? And she says, no, and it lights up green. Mm -hmm. And it's as though there's sort of some sort of independent thing in the universe verifying that Eleanor knows that the tattling is worse than confessing, right? Mm -hmm. That telling Michael that it was Chidi is gonna be both a violation of Chidi, but also somehow wrong 
for the situation that she needed to confess that she was in the bad place in the previous episode. She couldn't have Chidi or someone do it for her. And Chidi, for his own stomach aches, uh, is going to have to eventually confess that he's the one who kills Janet and that Eleanor can't really do it for him. And I think when that thing lights up green, it's sort of an affirmation that Eleanor is like, I'm going to protect Chidi. I'm going to protect Chidi until he's ready to do this thing that I've already done, which is to confess. Um, and that by by lighting up green, Michael knows like, well, there's no point in in pushing her because this objective machine has said, you know, she's not going to tell me. So I, I can ask and ask, but she's not going to tell me. Right. It knows the future as well as the present. Right. And then the sense of confession as acknowledgement that that this is this is who she is. She's established herself on a moral basis as the person who would not, you know, who would continue to stand by Chidi. You know, she has her reasons for that. You know, she's not doing it in a Kantian sense, as she described it. This is this is what she's taking responsibility for. Now that you're saying about you mentioned stomachache, that when Chidi does come to Michael after they've all tried to persuade him to to keep her around, he doesn't look very stomachachey at all. In fact, I don't think it is very clear. He confesses everything that he's done, and then he explains that that you know. Eleanor, uh, when she learned about what your retirement, Michael, was going to mean for you, uh, this is what she, these are all the, this is the reason she murdered Janet, and she is learning. And he seems so earnest. There's not any of that uh, exasperated, vexed uh, Chidi in that moment. And even when Michael throws it back to him, you know, this this is not Little League, you know, that um, Chidi kind of uh, stands there. He stands up. Um, it's in what seems like a very not Chidi like moment there but it almost seems easy for him to do that yeah because i think if you can sort of untangle yourself enough that confession can be freeing right that the truth will set you free as they say that chidi he literally gets a stomach ache from this kind of thing and the only way to rid yourself of the stomach ache is by is by saying what you did and i think hearkening back to episode seven with eleanor she you can see it in that episode. She looks pained until she set, stands up and says, like, I can't take it anymore. It was me. I don't belong in this place. And that living with the kinds of lies and deception that they're living with can cause you like actual physical pain as opposed to, in addition to whatever emotional or metaphysical pain and Kantian pain you're being <laughs> caused by, by these things. But that, that the confession, even if it sets off a series of really difficult events like might eventually lead you no pun intended to the good place or to a good place i find this you know hard to do you know as a as a fixer or someone who wants people to feel better or to be better i find it hard to stay in that uncertainty of confession just for its own i don't know not for its own sake but confession knowing that you can have you don't know the result i mean in the moment chidi doesn't know whether you know, is this going to lead him to be sent away? Like, what does it mean for, for any of them? None of them are certain. You know, if, if anything, Eleanor is certain that this is the end of the end of her. I mean, I don't know. It doesn't sound exactly ring true as being like courageous, but it does seem like a significant change. And I think that's also one of the things that comes up a lot in this series, but also when thinking about sort of this idea that each of your actions could could rebalance the scales in a, in a different way, which is that, let's say if you confess and you don't know what the consequences are, right? They could be really bad or they could be really good. And sometimes you have to figure out like what is the right thing um, and what is going to be sort of a more global right thing, uh, even if you don't necessarily know which way it's going to 
which way it's going to rebalance the scales or whether you're going to get sent to the bad place or or whatever the possible options are. Right? Chidi doesn't know when he, as you said, when he confesses that that's going to be the chain of events that, that saves Eleanor for the time being. Mm. But he does it because it's the right thing to do. You know, I'm thinking about something that happened to me very early in my career where I was guilty of kind of workplace gossip in a way that was common in my workplace and was common, I think, for me at that time. And there was a particular instance where something I said got around to uh, in a way that I didn't think, you know, was going to. And it was it turned out to be hurtful to my to my boss, who was a person who was on the whole very good to me. And I expressed a frustration and a criticism you know that of the sort that I that I commonly would back at that time and and so it took until it actually had the bad effect for me to really realize how bad it was and to confess you know I had to I both to confess to apologize to her and also it it was the moment actually that woke me up to to teshuva for myself I that's the moment where I resolved that I wasn't going to do that kind of thing anymore but I didn't know until it got sort of until it cascaded, I didn't really know that I had done the wrong thing. And like maybe it would have been good if I had known ahead of time or if I had confessed you know, earlier to anybody. Uh, but I think it's also okay that Eleanor doesn't really get, you know, she starts by spinning this as like this great thing she did for, who was it? The, uh, <laughs> was it to the, the churro dog uh, the, oh, yeah. uh-huh. um, niece or something like that? Um, I just watched this the other day. I should know who it was. But anyway, it started off as a good thing. But she didn't realize it was... <laughs> It obviously wasn't clearly a really bad thing with the dress until it until it became even worse than it was. And uh, and I think it's okay that you you know at any stage on the process, including when it's all when the when the dust is settled, you know, it's still okay to confess and to start from that point. Churro dog, yes or no? Oh, I don't know. Um, I think isn't that isn't that like super spicy or am I con- am I confused? Oh no, no churros. churros are like those. They're sweet. They're like donuts, but not donut. I'm thinking chorizo, I think. So yes. yes. Um yeah, I probably could. How about you? <laughs> I don't think so. I I I I mean I'll eat a hot dog, but I don't know that I want it also with a churro and beef jerky. That feels like maybe <laughs> a few too many things in one in one thing. But you know, Eleanor says it's really good. I mean if so. you put it in the microwave with some fish, it's really <laughs> it's really great. It explodes you know, all we, over the we place. We have not had really access to a microwave in our office during covid but now the microwave is back and we'll have to put up a sign no fish in the microwave or you get sent to the bad place (laughs) how about hawaiian pizzas (laughs) it's not my thing but like you know you do you with your hawaiian pizza i mean you lived in california there must have been a lot of that kind of pineapple pizza thing no am i wrong (laughs) i just you know my i have little kids they eat cheese pizza (laughs) definitely no like basil or anything like that that's just cheese pizza and I was trying, is Manhattan clam chowder? Because <laughs> they said the dining, Trevor said that on the dining car, they had only Manhattan clam chowder at the dining car and it's closed. <laughs> yeah. You know, being a kosher person, I'm not like up on my clam chowder, but I will say that last year, my son, there's a lot of oysters in the Hudson River now and they're being uh. used from an environmental perspective. Apparently they do something to clean the Hudson River. And so, you know, you have all of these Jewish kids going down to the Hudson River to study oysters with their selfish. (laughs) So that was pretty funny. But um, apparently, you know, they do a lot of good for the environment. I know oysters and clams are not the same audience. Don't come for me, (laughs) which I'm not on. I don't know what Manhattan clam chowder is. Maybe it's just clams you fished out of the East River, which would be a (laughs) very big mistake. (laughs) 
perhaps this <laughs> this will be a viewer a listener challenge to figure that out i am i do like fish chowder it was actually the the my first uh, major kitchen mistake was trying to make some fish chowder uh in my uh, small in apartment. microwave no, and actually not in the microwave, but it was in a pot in New York City in a small kitchen and it exploded onto the ceiling. Mm -hmm. So that didn't harm anybody else. It just was a real pain to, <laughs> to clean up. <laughs> yeah, well, Trevor really, he has it, he has it down. But, um, you know, I it, it's as a very big fan of, of Parks and Rec, it's hard to look at Trevor and not think of Ben for Parks and Rec, who's a very lovely and lovable character. So um, it's just a little cognitive dissonance when you... If you're a fan of Parks and Rec and you uh, then you look at Trevor, and you think he's not a demon. He's a bureaucrat from Pawnee, Indiana. See, that's so interesting because I, I looked at him having not really watched much Parks and Rec. And he immediately looks to me like not just uh, the part of Trevor, but um, but but he I think almost frightens me. He must be pushing some teenage button in me because I just think, oh, this is like someone I not not someone who is in my social circle exactly, but like I feel like adjacent to and who, you know, I could see that exactly that person having made my life miserable in some way. I fortunately there's no one out there I can name and say Trevor's reminding me of you. Not that I would name you on the on the podcast if I if I could think of it. No, well, okay, well if you don't watch Parks and Rec, that after you're done with the good place, go to Parks and Rec. It, it's just it's it's not it it's just as brilliant as the good place but it's a different it's a different kind of show and adam scott is great on that show and he's great on this show so so let's see do we have anything else here We're... i think one other thing that stood out is um at the at the end eleanor says this whole good bad system is bullshit right <laughs> and i think that's that's actually a lot of what jews think about on russian and yom kippur like really, this is what we're all going to synagogue for to be like tallied up and go in the book of life or the, you know, the book of death, the bad book, right? Like there, there should, as she said, there should be a medium place. So I just liked, I liked that line. It's the whole good, bad system is bullshit. And then, you know, I'm sure you'll get into this with whoever you're talking to about episode nine, but the, the real Eleanor coming out. And, and I think it's one thing to think in abstract, oh, there, I got sent to the wrong place. And it's another thing and maybe this brings us back full circle to the beginning to be like faced with the person who is suffering because you are in the you are in one place and they are in another place, right? It's it's the it's the theory that if you see like one if you learn the story of one starving child, you're much more likely to help um, than if you hear a statistic about you know one million starving children. And so to sort of see the real Eleanor come off the train and be faced with her. Uh, it, it opens up all kinds of interesting moral quandaries. Like at that, at that moment, at least I really felt like, oh God, it, it's really bad actually that Kristen Bell Eleanor is in the good place and this other Eleanor is suffering because of it. Yeah, there's so much. Uh, I, I like how this episode is, you know, reweaves some of these threads, even this issue of the title, The Most Improved Player, which kind of pulls back again this whole issue of... Uh, whether we judge someone according to some absolute scale versus kind of their own growth or their own nature. And then, and then this question of, uh, you know, does the good, bad system really work and describe everything? And, and what you're saying is my, yeah. Um, I guess the, the earlier part of the story is, you know, is her Zellin or is destiny kind of tied to this, the horrible group of roommates or this like better group of good place things. And now this other person, yeah, it throws a lot of that into the, uh, into the mix and just sort of stirs the pot on things we've been talking about before. 
is that a real life situation at all where my, you know, I could see there's competitions for like things where there's only room for one. Maybe not as, maybe not as dramatically as in, in the good place, but sure. There's lots of things where, you know, you do something and by extension, somebody else can't do it. Hopefully nobody is out there directly suffering because of something that I did or a mistake that I made, but it's, I am open to the idea that it's possible. Yeah. I suppose the other thing is like, you know, I, I got this job and, uh, and somebody else didn't. It's funny, actually, now, I, I don't know if we'll keep this in. I have often thought that it like what I would love to do, actually, is to teach like introduction to ethical philosophy at a at a community college. And then I realized, wait a minute, I have a job. And there are people who like won't have a job, like if I get that adjunct, you know, one, one class in introduction to political to ethical philosophy, like somebody who that's actually their career, uh, can't have that job. And, uh, you know, that's a living for them. And for me, it would be, you know, fulfilling if I could add that. So maybe that's for me, um, you know, where this shows up. Well, thank you again, Rebecca, for coming by and having this conversation. Thanks for having me. This was really fun. And it's a nice way to spend the afternoon thinking about thinking about the good place. And that's all for another episode of Tove. Thank you for listening. We've got show notes at tovegoodplace.com. Subscribe to Tove on your app of choice and help others find us by giving us a good rating or writing a review or sharing on social media. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Tove Good Place. Watch for our next episode with Ben Gurin and Myra Meskin, two rabbis with a baby they named Eleanor. Thanks again for making our conversation a part of your day. And to riff on Mark Evan Jackson from the official Good Place podcast, now go learn more about something good. Bum, 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 bum.